70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of global Korea. Throughout the year, we celebrate the 70th anniversary of KBS World Radio with the voices of our listeners from all over the world. Hello, KBS World Radio listeners. I am Kang Jung-hung from Zhejiang, China. First of all, congratulations on the 70th anniversary of KBS World Radio. I've been listening to KBS World Radio since 2016. The channel's been with me ever since and offered me a lot of things, including knowledge on Korean society and life in Korea, as well as the latest news. I also learned through KBS World Radio that the Korean people, including the young people, are striving to make their lives better. From their stories, I realized we all have the power within us to make society and our lives better. Lastly, I want to wish all the staff members and hosts health and success. Happy 70th birthday. KBS World Radio. Seventy years with KBS World Radio. Seventy years of global Korea. KBS World Radio brings Korea to you wherever you are. Hello, it's Wednesday, the 22nd of November, and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon jang North Korea has successfully launched a military spy satellite on its third attempt. In response, South Korea has partially suspended its military pact with the North and resumed aerial reconnaissance along the border. We'll have more in news briefing shortly. For our in-depth, we'll be joined by two British parliamentarians to talk about President Yoon's state visit and the significance of the 140-year Korea-UK relationship. And coming up for Korea Book Club, we have a classic novel this week, A Toy City by Lee Dong-ha, a coming-of-age story set in post-war Korea. We have all that and more on today's Korea 24. North Korea has now successfully launched a military spy satellite into space. The launch came late Tuesday night, coming after two failed launches earlier this year. And it came despite repeated warnings from South Korea and the US. Seoul responded quickly by partially suspending its military pact with the North and restarting aerial recon along the inter-Korean border. Our KBS World Radio News Editor Guijin joins us in the studio now to break down the launch and its repercussions, as well as our other headlines of the day. Guijin, hello. Hello, Zhang. The launch prompted South Korea to partially suspend its 2018 military agreement with the North and reinitiate aerial reconnaissance activities along the border. But first, what can you tell us about the launch itself? Well, the South Korean Joint Chiefs of Staff detected North Korea's military satellite launch at around 10.43pm Tuesday. The North State-run Korean Central uh, Television and uh, News Agency released photos of the launch Wednesday, proclaiming its success. The launch came an hour earlier than the previously declared window between uh, Wednesday and the end of the month, which Pyongyang provided to the Maritime Safety Agency of Japan. Fired from the Sohae Satellite Launching Station, 
location on the north, uh, north's uh, western coast. The launch vehicle flew over the sea between the uh, Korean Peninsula and China, forcing Japan to uh, issue a missile warning to, uh, for the island of Okinawa. Uh, shortly after the launch, the South Korean National Security Council held an emergency meeting presided over remotely by President Yoon Song-yeol, who is in Britain for a state visit. The NSC decided to partially suspend, as, I, as you said, the, 18, uh, the 2018 inter-Korean military accord signed during the brief detente to reactivate uh, our aerial reconnaissance activities along the border. South Korea, the US and Japan are analysing the details of that projectile and South Korean Defence Minister Shin Won-shik told KBS that it appears that the North Korean satellite has entered into orbit. The Joint Chiefs of Staff have just released a similar assessment. North Korea has touted the success of the satellite launch already as well, saying that its leader Kim Jong-un has checked aerial images of a U.S. Air Force base, the Anderson Air Force Base in Guam. Can you tell us more? Well, the North's official Korean Central News Agency confirmed early Wednesday, three hours after the launch, that its National Aerospace Technology Administration fired the Maligang-1 satellite on a Cholima-1 rocket from the Sohae satellite launching site in North Pyongan province at 10.42pm Tuesday. The state-run mouthpiece also reported later it will embark on a reconnaissance mission starting next week. The North's state-run Korean Central News Agency said leader Kim Jong-un visited the Pyongyang Control Center of the National Aerospace Development Administration at 10 a.m. Wednesday and inspected the status of that satellite. And according to the report, the agency informed Kim that the satellite will officially begin official recon duties from next Friday. The report said Kim also checked aerial images of key U.S. military bases, including, as you said, Anderson Air Force Base taken from the skies above Guam and received at 9.21 a.m. Wednesday. The report cited Kim saying that the North's military force has now acquired an eye that can look down at 10,000 and a powerful fist that can hit 10,000 Li. Li is a Korean unit at measurement and 10,000 Li is equivalent to more than 3,900 kilometres. Meanwhile, the global community immediately slammed the launch. And as you mentioned earlier, the US uh, said an uh, an assessment will take place with its allies and partners, including South Korea. Uh, What more can you tell us about the response from other countries? Well, according to the National Security Council spokesperson, Adrienne Watson, on Tuesday, North Korea's latest satellite launch using ballistic missile technology is a brazen violation of multiple UN Security Council resolutions. And she added that such actions raise tensions and risks, destabilising the security situation in the region and beyond. She added that the door is has not closed on diplomacy, but Pyongyang must immediately end all its provocative actions and choose engagement. And according to UN Deputy Spokesperson Farhan Kak, the UN Security uh, uh, Secretary General Antonio Guterres strongly condemned the launch of yet another military satellite using ballistic missile technology by the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida also slammed the North's launch, calling it a grave situation in which the safety of the Japanese people were endangered. Moments after the launch, President Yoon Sang-yeol addressed the British Parliament in London, where he is on a state visit. He stressed the two nations must stand in solidarity to respond to global challenges and geopolitical risks, including North Korea's 
escalating provocations. What can you tell us? Well, the president touted the 140th year of diplomatic ties between South Korea and the United Kingdom this year as one with importance and meaning for the partnership. Uh, president Yoon Sung yeol told British uh, lawmakers that Seoul-London relations will be reborn in areas of security and the economy in his address on Tuesday. The president delivered the speech at the Palace of Westminster on the second day of his state visit. And it came in the short wake of North Korea's military satellites launch. Um, the, the president also added that the two countries will bolster economic cooperation by working together in supply chains and digital trade. Yoon will take a practical step towards such joint growth on Wednesday when he holds a bilateral summit with the UK Prime Minister and signs the Downing Street Accord, a long-term agreement covering defence and technology cooperation. The president also previewed uh, that meeting. Uh, Yun heads to France Thursday for a visit aimed at bolstering support for South Korea's bid to host the 2030 World Expo. BIE delegates are scheduled to vote to choose the host city on November 28th, with South Korea vying to host the event along with Riyadh, Saudi Arabia and Rome, Italy. Let's turn now to the ongoing conflict in the Middle East. Israel and Hamas have reached an agreement on a four-day ceasefire in exchange for at least 50 hostages out of the 240 in the militant group's custody. What more can you tell us? Well, according to the Associated Press on Wednesday, Israel cabinet uh, approved the US and Qatar uh, brokered temporary uh, ceasefire that would bring a halt to the ongoing war for the first time since it was sparked by Hamas surprise attacks on uh, October 7th. The deal calls for Hamas to release roughly 12 hostages each day, mostly women and children, upon the start of the pause, which was not specified but could be as early as Thursday with an extra they added for every 10 additional hostages released. While media reports said Israel has agreed to release some 150 Palestinian prisoners and allow additional humanitarian aid into Gaza, the Israeli government's announcement of the deal did not include such stipulations. Ahead of a vote by the cabinet, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who said uh, the war against Hamas will resume after the truce expires and that his country will continue until it achieves all its goals. And finally, Binance, the world's largest virtual currency exchange, has pleaded guilty to violating the US's anti-money laundering laws and enabling enabling deals with countries subject to US sanctions, including North Korea. Can you tell us more? Well, the US Treasury and Justice Partners said on Tuesday that the company agreed to pay more than $4.3 billion in fines for violations related to the Bank Secrecy Act and the uh, International Emergency Economic Powers Act. The department said Binance's founder and chief executive officer, Chang Peng Zhao, pleaded guilty to failing uh, to maintain an AML program in violation of the BSA and resigned from his post. That's all for our news briefing today. Thank you for those updates. Thank you. We celebrate the 140th anniversary of the establishment 
of diplomatic ties. It will be an important and meaningful year for our partnership. Last spring, the United Kingdom South Korean President Yoon Sang-yeol delivered a speech before the British Parliament on Tuesday during his state visit to the UK, titled A Friendship to Turn Our Challenges to Pure Opportunity. He touted the 140 years of diplomatic ties between the two nations and called for closer future cooperation amid geopolitical risks regionally and around the globe. Let's hear a little more from that speech. We will work together we will build a free and open international order. Together, we will cultivate sustainable growth and prosperity for all of humanity. We will broaden our cooperation to digital, AI, cybersecurity, nuclear energy, and defense industry. To talk more about Yoon's visit, as well as the prospects of the relationship between Seoul and London, I'm delighted to say that we have two British politicians joining us today. First up, we have Lord David Alton of Liverpool, who is the founder and co-chairman of the British DPRK All-Party Parliamentary Group and a follower of Korean Peninsula Affairs. He joins us on the line now. Lord Alton, hello and thank you for your time today. Hello, it's a great pleasure to be with you. I believe you were present at President Yun's speech. What did you make of it? What stood out to you? I was honoured to be asked to be one of the welcoming committees, so four parliamentarians, two members of the House of Commons and two members of the House of Lords, uh, met and greeted the President and the First Lady when they arrived here at Westminster yesterday, and then also to have an opportunity after hearing his speech to talk to him and also to Foreign Minister Jim Park as well, about the many issues that unite our two nations. This was a historic occasion, uh, not least because, of course, it's the first state visit since King Charles ascended, ascended the throne. Um, and it was, was, I think, a way of establishing and deepening, as the president himself said, what is already a flourishing and long-standing relationship. But I thought myself that the speech was extremely well judged, very well delivered, but he and the First Lady won hearts and minds. I was, thought he had an impressive and great command of our language and our history and story, uh, complete with quotations from Winston Churchill and, and, and from Shakespeare. And he, I thought, um, captured hearts as well by the references to our Korean veterans. After all, a thousand British servicemen died during the Korean War, um, which we're commemorating at this time. And one of them... Uh, one of the veterans from that period, Colin Thackeray, was, was present yesterday, and it was lovely to hear the specific reference that President Ewan made, made to Colin. Yes, and Ewan's state visit comes as the two countries are celebrating 140 years of diplomatic ties. Now, Career 24 airs worldwide for listeners uh, who may, may not be familiar with uh, South Korea-UK relations. It is a, a topic which we would assume that not many of our listeners uh, are used to hearing about. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about the relationship between South Korea and Britain and why it's been so significant? It doesn't take long to have discussions with serious-minded people in the Republic of Korea to know how much they owe as a debt to the free nations of the world and their willingness to sacrifice in blood and treasure uh, a stand with them, which would have otherwise led to 
than being governed in the way that the Koreans of North Korea are governed by a communist dictatorship. So the freedoms that were won as a consequence of the deaths of so many, millions of Koreans, of course, 38,000 Americans and and, uh, 1,000 British servicemen, that the United Nations stood with the people of South Korea so that they could determine their own future. That was hugely important and symbolic. It's often called as it's been referred to during the visit, the Forgotten War, but it shouldn't be forgotten, and certainly not by the United Kingdom. Uh, more people died on the Korean Peninsula in the service of king and country than, for instance, died in Afghanistan, the Falklands, and Iraq combined. So that, I would say, underpins our relationship, but it goes way beyond that. I mean, during the decades that have followed, we have broadened our relationships into um, joint enterprises uh, in commerce, in industry, um, in education as well. I mean, there are always a, a tranche of Korean scholars who are in the United Kingdom in our universities, and it's been a two-way street. Uh, I think there's a, a great love between the United Kingdom uh, and the Republic of Korea. And this visit undoubtedly, therefore, does a lot to entrench that. But this is also a time of acute danger. You only have to think about the axis of dictators in the world versus the axis of democracy. You think of the relationship between um, Kim Jong-un and Putin or with Xi Jinping, or for that matter, even with Khamenei, the the uh, theocratic leader of Iran. And you, ha- you can see what I mean by an axis of dictators. So we remember our past struggles, but we also remember the present ones. And it's important that we should build our defense uh, relationships and alliances to try and prevent further wars and conflicts from taking place in, in the future. So I think that the building on this relationship, the president will be meeting Prime Minister Rishi Sunak later today. Um, I think that that will be an opportunity for us to uh, create a new agreement about our future relationships, mm. whether they are cultural, educational, diplomatic, or for that matter, defence. Lord Alton, I know you've personally been very involved in addressing North Korea's human rights abuses. You've been to North Korea yourself on several occasions, I understand. Uh, what role has the UK played in trying to address this issue and how port, how important is the UK's relationship with South Korea when it comes to addressing this? Well, it was the first of the elected presidents in South Korea, which after all was a military dictatorship. We forget even in our own lifetimes the extraordinary changes that have taken place. But it was Kim Dae-jung who invited our then Prime Minister, Tony Blair, to go to Seoul and to make a very important statement about moving on even from the armistice that we and the United States and the Republic of Korea have with North Korea. We decided, the United Kingdom decided, but with the encouragement of the Republic of Korea to create diplomatic relations. So we have diplomats in Pyongyang, normally anyway, since the pandemic, of course, our current ambassador, David Ellis, has been unable to take up his post, but we understand that it's likely in the new year that with the borders now reopening, that the British diplomatic presence in the DPRK will be resumed. And I think it's a very good thing. I mean, Churchill himself, after all, said our great wartime leader said we need more jaw-jaw and less war. So I think talking never 
costs us anything. It also can make significant gains. However, we shouldn't be under any illusions about the nature of the North Korean regime. It trades in weapons of mass destruction. It has been supporting Putin in the war in Ukraine. We're told a thousand containers full of armaments and weapons was shipped to the front lines there. I mean, this is, this is appalling. And the destabilizing of the whole of the region as a result of the uh, decision to defy the United Nations uh, Security Council resolutions. All of that has to be in our minds, but so do human rights violations. It is 10 years ago this year, and I was in Seoul a few weeks ago at the conference uh, which the UN administration had organized to commemorate the 10th anniversary of the Commission of Inquiry report, which found crimes against humanity in North Korea. Instead, it was a state without parallel. Well, the Republic of Korea is about to become a member of the Security Council. I had the opportunity yesterday to speak directly uh, to President Yoon about the importance of using that opportunity on the Security Council to return to the Commission of Inquiry recommendations and to raise this appalling, egregious violations of human rights at every opportunity. And I also pressed him to raise with the People's Republic of China the repatriation hmm. of North Korean citizens to North Korea. And I received a very positive response from the President. I handed him a formal letter uh, in Korean from the all-party parliamentary group on North Korea, which, as you say, I founded and co-chair. Right. It's a very important issue indeed, and uh, hopefully together uh, more can be done. And finally, very briefly, uh, what do you think the future of South Korea-UK ties uh, looks like? Seoul and London, they announced that the two sides will sound the will sign the Downing Street Accord, which will upgrade the current broad and creative partnership to a global strategic partnership. Uh, what do you hope for in the future? Well, amongst other things, I know that our Prime Minister, for instance, who recently uh, convened the first sum international summit on uh, artificial intelligence, AI, I know that that will be one of the issues that he and President Yoon will want to talk about, but also uh, cyber developments and ways in which the United Kingdom should make itself a lot less dependent on the People's Republic of China. It's extraordinary that we have a trade deficit of over 40 billion pounds uh, with the People's Republic of China. It's completely unnecessary. It is undesirable. It creates dependency. We need greater resilience. And who better as a major trading partner than the Republic of Korea? So I hope that we will see our friends in the East through various other lenses than the commercial ones that some people make so much of. I hope we'll see our friends uh, in East Asia through, through the lens of democracy, human rights, and the rule of law. And the president himself yes, yesterday said he believes in a free and open international order. So do I. So do the United Kingdom government. So, so do the people of this country. And what better allies could we have? Lord Alton, we'll leave it there. We've been speaking to Lord David Alton of Liverpool. Thank you once again for your time today. It's a pleasure. Now, to get further thoughts on President Yun's state visit to the UK and relations between the two nations, we're joined by Stephen Hammond, P uh, Member of Parliament for Wimbledon and also Vice-Chair of the People uh, of the Republic of Korea All-Party Parliamentary Group. We connect with him now. Mr. Hammond, hello, and thank you for your time today. Hello, good morning, and uh, it's good to speak to you. I understand that you were present during President Yoon's speech before the British Parliament on Tuesday. Uh, what did you make of the speech? 
Yeah, I was. It was uh, it was a, a wonderful occasion. Um, the speech itself, I thought, was uh, delivered with warmth and with intelligence and insightfulness. Uh, the president spoke about the historic links between our two countries, in particular some of the help that Britain has given Korea over over years. But now talking about our future together and our economic and cultural links. And it was also a very ambitious speech as well. Um, it was noticeable that he was setting out, I think, uh, uh, an increasing role for Korea on the international stage with its partners. Uh, he made reference to how we must work together to secure an international, a free and open international order. He talked about geopolitical challenges causing divide in a number of nations and that the role of nations like Korea and the United Kingdom was to make sure that we ensure that those geopolitical challenges didn't spill over into conflict. And I think then made the point at the end, which was, I think, was well, there was obviously a lot about economics. And I guess we're going to talk about that in a moment. And I'll come on to that, perhaps. But he also, I think, at the end closed um, with um, some very interesting points about the role in the world. And um, I think he requoted uh, the famous phrase, one country alone can't defend peace, and talked about the obligation of all of us uh, to, to defend peace. And then obviously spoke, um, gave a, a short preview of what we might see in the Downing Street Declaration today. Right, and President Yun's visit coincides with the 140th anniversary of diplomatic ties between South Korea and the UK. How would you describe that relationship? How significant do you think the relationship has been over those years? I think it's been extraordinarily uh, uh, significant historically because uh, it has provided for both countries, a, for the UK, a, a, a reliable partner in in southeast in southeast asia and it's also provided i guess for the for korea i hope a reliable partner in the united kingdom and a strong international partner for many years um i think that actually all relationships one should dwell um recognize the importance of the past but look at the opportunities of the future and i think the president his relationship my discussions with the korean ambassador here in london uh, and others, uh, and meeting members of the Korean Parliament earlier this year. Uh, a relationship is not a static thing, it's a dynamic thing. And I think we both recognize, both countries recognize that it's been a powerful uh, diplomatic, uh, both sides have been a powerful diplomatic partner for one another. But, you know, we must continue to do that and we must continue to strengthen and expand that. Uh, you mentioned the significance of the economic relationship as well. How important do you think that has been? Well, I think it's been extraordinary, hasn't it? You've seen, you know, as, as, as the president stated, you know, over the last um, few decades, uh, South Korea become a world economic power, um, which it, it wasn't uh, uh, a few decades ago. It is an international leader in areas of the future uh, in terms of, I think, uh, digital AI semiconductors and it is incredibly uh, important therefore we're talking about how we've recognized that the fun, uh, the trade agreement we signed in 21 has been uh, has been a starting point i think for i think what we a lot of us hope to see today 
uh, and recognizing that between the two nations, trade in finance, logistics, services, biosciences, cooperation uh, on AI and digital um, are going to be the basis of uh, international global growth, um, as well as manufacturing and service, uh, traditional manufacturing and services. And strengthening our relationship in those areas is key. You are the MP for Wimbledon. I am very familiar with that area personally because I went to school there. Uh, there are quite a few Korean residents in your constituency, which is uh, next door to the main Korean community of Kingston and New Malden. And you are part of the South Korea uh, APPG as well, as we mentioned. With that knowledge and that experience, more, what more would you like to see from the relationship between Korea and the UK? Earlier you talked about looking to the past, but also looking to the future. What potential opportunities do you think there are uh, moving forward? Um, you're right, and it's been a great pleasure to welcome uh, a number of uh, Korean families into Wimbledon. I think it's increasingly, um, as we see people move from the Kingston area into Rains Park and to Wimbledon itself, um, a vibrancy and a, a different culture, which is really appreciated. Uh, what do I want to see? I want to see us become, um, I think, as your president outlined, which is the ambition that you know, British and Korean politicians should have, British and Korean uh, business leaders should have, that we have a global strategic partnership uh, and we become uh, together, we work even more closely together in areas of diplomacy, but also in areas of economics. Uh, and I think that we need to look at, uh, as I said, how we how we shape the world in terms of regulation around AI, but development in, in other areas of technology, how we shape the world in um, making sure that there is, as to quote your president again, free and open international order, how uh, countries across the world uh, recognize and support Korea uh, to make sure that the totalitarian regime that is next door does not, affair, uh, does not um, ever seek to attack the extraordinarily strong and vibrant democracy of Korea, South Korea. So I think what a lot of people are looking forward to today is the Downing Street Accord, not just being an end in itself, but yet, a, yet another way of parving out a closer future. Well, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show today. We've been speaking to Stephen Hammond, MP for Wimbledon. Thank you once again for your time. My pleasure. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index gained 1.28 points, or 0.05% on Wednesday, to close the day at 2,511.70. The tech-heavy Kosdaq inched down 2.4 points, or 0.29%, to close at 814.61. On the foreign exchange, the local currency weakened 11.31 against the U.S. dollar closing the day at 1,300.51. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. Next up, it's Korea Trending, our daily segments where we take a look at some other news stories that have been trending online. And we have joining us in the studio... Studio Now News Editor Daniel Chair to bring us those stories. Daniel, hello. It's good to see you. Good to see you again, Jungle. Okay, so what do you have for us first today? 
A parent of a student that took the CSAT or Sunung is taking action against a high school in Seoul over how their child was accused of cheating. Right, so this story is actually about how the parents' actions might have gone too far. But before we get into that, can you first tell us about how the student may have violated the test rules? According to the Seoul Teachers Union on Tuesday, during the test which took place last Thursday, the student was caught marking his answer sheet after the bell sounded and the exam ended. The exam supervisor had to report it as a violation, but the student claims to have put the pen down and did not carry out such acts, and also claimed that the supervisor took unnecessary, aggressive physical action by restraining him. If violations are spotted during the exam, the student and the supervisor are required to submit written explanations about the incident to the Institute of Curriculum and Evaluation. A special Sunung committee will review the case and determine what the appropriate action will be before exam results are released. So this is where the parent comes in. The parent went to the school that the supervisor works at to stage a one-person protest and concerns regarding how the supervisor's personal information was found have been brought up. Yes, the teachers from across the nation volunteer as supervisors during the Sunung. It's no easy task as they have to endure, ensure they provide ample assistance to exam takers while also keeping a watchful eye out for cheaters. And they're always standing up. They're not seated down, by the way. Mm. So it is concerning that the parent with a bone to pick with a particular supervisor could find out which school they work at when such personal info is designed to be kept confidential. Indeed. So what's being done to protect the teacher now? The Seoul Metropolitan Office of Education took immediate action to protect the teacher by dispatching security personnel first. In terms of the one-person protest by the parent, however, apparently there are no means to legally put a stop to it. Discussions are ongoing to formulate appropriate measures to prevent a recurrence of such incidents, as well as a manual in response measures if they occur again. Yes, teacher protection has become a major issue in Korea over the last year or so after a spate of incidents where teachers took their own lives. And while a parent might have the right to protest a decision on behalf of their children, it seems here that they might have crossed the line. So uh, immediately going after for uh, going for the extreme option here. Uh, So, yes, it is a concerning situation and we'll see how it does get resolved. Let's move on to the second story now. What do you have for us? In the waters of Ulung Island, located 120 kilometers east of the Korean Peninsula, more and more tropical and subtropical marine life are being spotted. This is another example of how Korea's marine ecosystem has been changing. Yes, this is an issue that we've discussed on the show a few times in the past already. Actually, I think earlier just this week, we talked about one story like this as well. Can you walk us through uh, this situation? Sure thing. According to the National Institute of Biological Resources, on Tuesday, 131 different types of fish have been spotted in the waters of Ulung since 2021. Among the 131 types of fish, 49 were tropical and 27 were subtropical. Together, they take up more than 58% of the total. One institute official said that there were only about 50 neon damsel fish last year, but their number ballooned to 500 already this year. Right, so we're seeing more and more reports of fish that are not often found around the Korean Peninsula suddenly popping up due to the rising sea temperatures. That's right. The Institute says since late August and early September, the surface temperature of the water surrounding the Korean Peninsula rose to 26 degrees Celsius, the highest recorded since relevant data compilation began in 1990. And if you look at the EC's surface temperature, it was 25.8, which is 2 degrees higher than the previous year. Without proper low-carbon measures being implemented and followed, in the worst-case scenario, the temperature could go all the way up by 
2.4 degrees between 2041 and the year 2060. Right, so who knows what kind of fish we'll see uh, around the Korean peninsula. Evidence of the impacts of climate change continue uh, to build once again. Let's continue on to our last story now. What else was trending today? Well, we're looking at the world of sports now in soccer or football. Team Korea beat China 3-0 in their second round match of the Asian qualifiers for the 2026 World Cup on Tuesday. Yes, it was a, a very good win and Korea were able to extend their perfect start to the World Cup qualifiers. This time it was captain Son Heung-min who delivered. Right, no surprise there. The Tottenham star scored a brace for the fifth straight win under manager Jurgen Klinsmann, who has been uh, in, in the spotlight before he got this winning streak mm. got going. Ahead of the match at Shenzhen Universiat Sports Center in Shenzhen, China, Son told his teammates that Asian teams will try to be extra physical against the Taegu Warriors and try to get under their skin. He reminded them not to fall prey to such strategy, that they must just play their game and stick to the plan. The players took that advice to heart, apparently. They rallied behind their leader and showed solid cohesion overall throughout the game. Right, and it was indeed a hostile environment, right? What kind of situations did the uh, players face in Shenzhen? As Captain Son anticipated, some Chinese players worked hard not just to outrun or outscore Korea, but to be physically intimidating. Mm. It is understandable that a lot is at stake, and you do want to perform outstandingly before the home crowd. But oftentimes, Korean players were seen hobbling to the ground and sustaining injuries due to rough play. And the Chinese players would complain to the refs and, or simply re- ignore the fallen players and disregard the cause and carry on with the game. There were reportedly also people booing while the Korean national anthem is being played and even a spectator using a laser pointer to disrupt or distract Son Heung-min and Lee Gang-in. Yes, we could see it on Son Heung-min's face when he was about to take that, first, uh, pe- that penalty for the first goal. So yes, it was a rather unfortunate sight we saw. So, but uh, fortunately, in the end, the Tech Warriors were able to overcome all that and get the much-needed win. It was another good performance from Korea. Expectations now really rising for next year's Asian Cup, which coach Klinsman has said that he aims to win. But it's uh, certainly good to see Korea perform so well ahead of that. That's where we're going to wrap it up for today's Korea Trending. Thank you for bringing us those stories, Daniel, and we'll see you next time. Thank you so much for having me. Next up, it's our Wednesday segment, Korea Book Club. This is our weekly corner where we explore the world of Korean literature and books through works available in translation and in Korean as well. And we do that with the help of our special contributors. Joining me in the studio now, we have with us our literary critic, Barry Welsh. Barry, hello. It's great to see you again. Yes, hello. Okay, so what are you introducing to our listeners today? So this week we're reviewing a classic novel called A Toy City. The Korean title is Changnangam Doshi, and the writer is Lee Dong-ha. And it was originally published in 1979. Uh, it was subsequently translated into English by Chon Kyung-ja in 2013. And he was born on December, uh, December 1st, 1942. Uh, he was originally from uh, Osaka in Japan, but his family relocated to Gyeongsang 
Senbokdo in Korea after the end of Japanese rule. Uh, he uh, pursued cre- uh, education in the creative writing department at the Sorebol College of Arts. And then he did a master's degree in Korean literature at Gongguk University, which he completed uh, all the way back in 1967. Uh, and his career also included a tenure as a professor at Chungang University. Uh, he started his journey as a writer in 1966, uh, winning uh, an accolade from a Seoul newspaper. And among his most notable works are today's book, Toy A Toy City, and Shrapnel, an anthology of uh, short stories uh, set in the post-war period. Uh, and his talents have been recognised over the decades with several awards, including the Korean Fiction Award, the Korean Literary Writer Award, uh, the Hyundai Munhak Award and the Oh Young-soo Literature Award. Uh, and uh, his literary creations that we'll see in today's novel and his other stories often explore the, the significant impact of conflict within South Korea, so the war, the post-war period. Mm. Uh, and he frequently writes about the anguish of this uh, internal strife of division, uh, which he sees often in his stories as being exacerbated by external influences. Uh, and his stories underscore the struggle to reconcile the rapid economic advancement of Korea with this deep-seated trauma uh, and what he sees as the fragmentation of long-standing Korean cultural traditions. Uh, and Toy City is an excellent example of his work and how he writes about these uh, key themes. Right, so he's someone who saw firsthand the painful aftermath of the Korean War and how the country had to Mm -hmm. build back up from the ashes, essentially. Mm -hmm. And his works perhaps are a reflection of that, reflections on that as well. So A Toy Toy City, today's book, was originally published in 1979, as you said. Mm -hmm. So what is A Toy City about? How does it reflect post-war Korean society. Right, yes. Yeah. So, uh, A Toy City, it's a it's a, a very moving coming-of-age story set in uh, you know post-war South Korea, uh, and it centres on an unnamed fourth-grade boy who is essentially a stand-in for writer E. This isn't a strictly, completely autobiographical novel, but it, it is obviously drawing on his, his own uh, experiences. Mm. But this autobiographical-like narrative offers readers a window into the struggles of a very poor family in a recovering nation and a, a, a city recovering from the, the ravages of war. But the story avoids focusing on the political aspects and it instead highlights the personal, uh, the emotional challenges faced by individuals like E and his family and their neighbours. Uh, and his journey is marked by hardship and early responsibility. Uh, he, he is sort of forced or he realises the need for self-reliance uh, because his family is grappling with poverty. His father and his mother as well don't make perhaps the best or most responsible decisions. And so he has to sort of become quite uh, self-reliant at a young age. And so he experiences very you know stark and challenging realities of loss and instability and... Uh, and even though he goes through these difficult experiences, the novel also captures moments of joy and uh, innocence. Uh, and so we have the sort of contrast of the harshness of post-war life with the resilience of this uh, young boy's human uh, spirit. And I think E's writing throughout the, the novel is very lyrical and poignant. Uh, he presents a vivid depiction of the struggles of 
uh, you know, Korea's lower class at, at this time in the 1950s. Uh, and we get a unique perspective on the impact of war on everyday life, especially for underprivileged people. Uh, and so through this young boy's eyes, we experience uh, a blend of hope, uh, frustration, and just the resilience required for survival. It's a very compelling book, very insightful. Uh, and I think it does an excellent job of, of shedding light on the uh, complexities of life in a war-torn society, uh, as well as the enduring strength of, of uh, uh, youth in the face of adversity. Right. Can you tell us a bit more about some of those themes you mentioned there as well? Can you unpeel the proverbial onion a bit more for us? While the story right. might centre around the boy's survival story against poverty, uh, what more is at play here? Why is the novel also regarded as a classic. Right, yes. Yeah. So uh, it's also about the sort of feeling of urban alienation. At the very beginning of the novel, they move from the countryside. Uh, they're sort of forced out of their country, their, their, the village they live in because of the poverty. They move to the big city to try and earn some more money, but it doesn't go very well. And so one of the main themes of the book is is just the sense of urban alienation, what it's like living in the, the big city in the post-war period, trying to survive and make money and, and feed your family. But also what he's writing about is the sort of accelerated loss of uh, traditional values. You saw the, the, the beginning of modernity or the looming uh, uh, face of modernity approaching. And then inside that, you've got this young boy's uh, search for identity and what is a rapidly changing society. And so these themes... We've you know we've encountered these themes in many of the novels and stories we've reviewed, especially books about this uh, period and about these sort of post-war decades in Korea. And it seems like these themes have resonated deeply with Korean readers, uh, and, and certainly since this novel was published over the, mm. over four decades ago. South Korea has obviously undergone this uh, rapid urbanisation and technological advancement significantly altering the social and cultural landscape. And I think this book speaks to uh, that Korean experience of, of uh, na- navigating these huge changes and, and their impact on uh, individual lives. Right. So it's a very insightful work, especially for its time, reflecting on what uh, Korean society had to bear through at that time and the, and the questions that led from that. How does... Uh, Idora's writing style contribute to the themes of the story as well. Right, so I think perhaps in this story is, uh, and you know, the work of the, the translator as well, this is where you can really see the sort of style that he's famous for. So A Toy City is defined by very poetic, uh, vivid storytelling. It's ma- mainly sort of built up from these little snapshots of experiences and events that happen. Uh, and uh, this sort of poetic style of writing really enriches the novel's themes. So uh, we have this lyrical prose that deeply immerses readers, I think, in this young boy's emotional world. Uh, you know, it conveys the complexities of his experiences and uh, and soul after the war. Uh, he's very good at using imagery and metaphor to transform the city into a, a living backdrop. Uh, you know, the city is really like another character in the story. Uh, he, we see the sort of chaotic and overwhelming nature of urban life. Uh, and again, we have the sort of stark contrasts of, of uh, the, the post-war reality that people were living in. Uh, and the narrative sort of blurs the lines between uh, reality and memory. So I think mirroring perhaps ease confusion and disorientation as he confronts these very difficult and and frequently changing circumstances. And I think that approach underscores the themes of lost innocence, uh, the abrupt shift from childhood to adulthood, 
And in that introspective style, uh, we see a very detailed exploration of these themes like alienation, the erosion of these traditional values mm. uh, and just the general search for identity amid a changing society. Uh, so his writing style, I think we'd say it's characterized by poetic language, uh, rich imagery and a focus on uh, personal experience. And it uh, deepens the reader's engagement with the emotional and psychological impact of the story as seen through a young boy's eyes. Mm. Sounds compelling. Uh, can you tell us a bit more? How does the book compare to other works of modern Korean literature? You said uh, earlier that this book is resonated deeply with Korean readers, but what about for an international audience, do you think? What makes it significant? Uh, a significant read for those interested in Korean culture and literature? Right, so I think the main thing that uh, the main reason that Toy City stands out is because it's a deeply introspective work it's also a deeply poetic approach to describing uh, the sort of difficult urban life a lot of the modern Korean novels focus on the historical, the political or the, the social aspects of Korea but you could argue that what he is doing here is delving more into the uh, psychological or, or even existential aspects and I think it complements these other works that we've reviewed over the over the, the years uh, by providing this more reflective and personal perspective on the challenge of modern uh, or you know post-war life in, in Seoul. Uh, I think it also offers a unique lens through which we can see the complexities of uh, post-war Korean society. It goes beyond surface-level observations uh, and provides a deeply felt exploration of the human condition uh, within the the context of of, uh, of post-war Korean. So I think for anyone interested in understanding uh, the psychological or emotional landscape of, of uh, modern Korea, it's an invaluable book to read. Mm. And uh, I think it not only enriches our understanding of Korean literature, but also provides insights into the broader uh, cultural shifts in Korea. So clearly a, a seminal and important work indeed. Once again, it's called A Toy City by Yi Dong-ha. And that was our pick for this week's Korea Book Club. Barry, thank you for that review as always. And we'll catch up with you again next time. Take care. OK, take care. That brings our show to a close today. Thank you for staying with us. We'll be back same time tomorrow. So do join us again then to continue to get your daily dose of Korean news analysis. Till then, we hope you have a wonderful day. I've been your host, Kwon jang And thank you as always for listening. Goodbye. World Radio.